0: Welcome everyone to another interview episode that I did back in October that I'm so happy to finally be bringing to you. This one that you're about to listen to is one of my favorites. I got the opportunity to hang out with Will Graham, the co-creator and producer for the new A League of Their Own series, and I could not be more excited about the opportunity to talk about the show with him as well as just His love of queer history and the way that so much of that was infused into the show. Hope this will tide you over until next month when we'll be doing a full episode on the queer history of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League and just queer women in baseball at the time. I'm going to be joined by Frankie de la Creta, who is a sports journalist and who wrote a wonderful article back in 2018 on the queer history of the league and did a phenomenal amount of research. And so I'm really excited to get to collaborate with them on an episode really diving into some of the things that I got to chat with Will about. So I hope you all are having a wonderful continued start to your 2023, and we'll see you for our next one. We've always been here. Every single year
1: From ancient Gays right up to today See, history
0: Is queer Some think it's A new way But we've got something to say History is very everyone welcome to history is gay i'm lee and i am coming to you in your podcast feeds with a very exciting bonus episode um i have had my entire brain taken over with The wonderful new Amazon series, A League of Their Own, basically expanding the world of one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid, and it's delightfully queer, meticulously researched, and just an absolute queer joy. If you've listened to this show, you know that the majority of things that I talk about when they're not queer history, and I'm talking about media, tend to be with Xena. This is the first piece of media that's uh, attached onto my brain in this sort of way uh, since that. So it's the highest of praise from me. And I'm so excited to be able to sit down today with the co-creator Will Graham. And we're going to talk about all the wonderful queer history elements of the show and what's to come and what it was like working on it. So, hi, Will. I'm so excited that we get to chat today.
1: Hi, I'm excited to be here.
0: I'm very, very pleased with the show. I'm sure that you, you know, have seen everybody raving about it. Fandom is in full force and this podcast in particular, we tend to <laughs> kind of sit right at the intersection of like queer history and pop culture and fandom reference, because that's just my background mm-hmm. and my love of all of this. Um, so I wanted to just, you know, he- talk about and hear about what the process was like for you all building this world and what it was like getting into this show um, for anybody who has not yet. Watched the show or seen you on Twitter or anything like that, which if you haven't, please go. What are you doing listening to this podcast if you haven't? Um, but can you tell uh, the audience a little bit about yourself and about the show?
1: Yes, of course. And first of all, um, it's so nice to be here and especially to talk about the history and the research underneath the show because that's such a, it's such an important part of the process and such a, a big part of why we're doing it and to what you said about the fandom for the show. And it's just been incredible for us to see that love. And, um, you know, it feels like part of it's about the show and part of it's also about a hunger, for these kinds of stories, and and a lack of these kind of really joyful but authentic queer stories. So, yeah, my, my name is Will Graham. I co-created *A League of Their Own*, the TV show, with Abby Jacobson, who also stars in it. We have a wonderful group of other producers on the show: Haley Waringo, who runs my company Field Trip, which produces the show; um, Jamie Babbitt who um, many of you will know from uh But I'm a Cheerleader, as well as many, many other amazing things since. And Jamie directed the pilot and the next two episodes of the show and Desta Tedros Ref, who is a writer and an EP, uh, ran the show along with me and Abby. And um yeah, it really, I mean, the show started... Um, in some sense, I think it's it's less of a reboot of the movie and more sort of a return to the stories underneath it. Um, and I, I love the movie growing up and love the stories. And I think like a lot of people kind of gravitated towards the subtext, um, the mm-hmm. queer subtext. I was like a, a broken um, kind of 12 year old who was uh, playing little league baseball. <laughs> Um, and, and felt like I was sort of undercover as a boy in some sense. Like I, Mm. I wasn't supposed to be there. And I think the movie kind of says, you know, you can be on the field, even if you don't look or seem like the people who are, are supposed to be on the field. And what we really did was, uh, yeah, go back to these massive stories underneath the film that I think, you know, with it being a movie and also it being 1992, uh, the film didn't really touch on the, the sort of queer history of the league. And it also didn't really touch on the experiences of, um, women of color who they're amazing stories. Um, principally Mamie Johnson, Tony Stone, and Connie Morgan, who were, mm. um, three women who, uh, weren't allowed to play in the All American Girls League, but, um, went out to play in the Negro Leagues with men to play pro ball, uh, on their own. And so we, you know, in concert with just a huge amount of research, we, we developed this show really to be the story of this generation of women. And some of them we would now, you know, probably identify as non-binary people, uh, trans people who wanted to play baseball. And I think for us, the show is that on the one hand, it's, it's simple and universal. It's about people trying to live their dreams. On the other hand, it's getting to bring to light this part of our history and part of American history that we really, um, we haven't seen in these kind of um, narratives that much.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, I go back to, you know, just when it first dropped, and there were all those, you know, review bombs being like, Oh, what are, what are all these gays doing in my 1940s media? And I'm like, you there's nothing, there's nothing out of place here. This is all meticulously researched.
1: It's meticulously researched. But it's also, I mean, I think more broadly, it's this feeling of like, as if, Uh, gay people just sort of lived underground until Stonewall. And I think, I think that has a real impact on us as we're Mm. growing up. The idea that the only people that, that before Stonewall, no one had a happy life as a gay person. They all were, you know, treated horribly, which they were, or they invented something and then were electrocuted. And the truth is that we've always had community and we've always had joy, whether or not the world wanted us to. And that there's also always been incredible hardship, just like there is today. So I think that 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 is, I think, a real part of the perspective that we took on the research and the storytelling, too.
0: Yeah. And I think that really comes through too the way that I mean, I think you and Abby and everybody else involved in the show have said in, in multiple interviews that the show is just the through line throughout it is that queer joy being that buoyancy mm-hmm. for everyone. But that doesn't mean that these things also didn't happen that made life difficult and had obstacles. But what I really appreciate about the show is that it it feels so grounded in community and finding those ways to tease out that joy. Um, I I read that you had before working on the show had kind of come across a love letter from one player in the league to another that kind of sparked your, you know, wanting to go in this direction with the show. Um, What was the process of starting to uncover some of these queer stories from the league?
1: Uh, so, so it was a a long process and an ongoing process in a lot of ways. Uh, it started, you know, I, I at first, um, I was making the show Mozart in the jungle and I started rewatching the movie. Uh, and, and then I just started to wonder about the history underneath it. And, you know, there's the, the famous scene from the movie where a black woman sort of throws the ball back to Gina Davis and then she disappears and you wonder what was that about? And then as a queer person, watching it, and in particular, Rosie's character. Um, but but a lot of the characters, Marla Hooch, you're kind of like, hmm, what was that? So I started Googling. You could just Kit. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Kit, absolutely, um, who is my favorite character from the movie. And before anyone was working on the show, I Googled a little bit um, just to, to sort of see what was out there. And immediately, there was a lot on the stories of Mamie. Connie and Tony. And there was a really big narrative about um, Latina players in the AGPBL that, that I didn't really know anything about. And there was little pieces of the queer story. Like there's a, a tombstone of two of the players that says, you know, their names and in, in a league of their own and it has their bats Um, and, and little pieces like that. And there were a few, um, players, like there's the story of Jojo D'Angelo, who was kicked out of the league for having like quote unquote butchy haircut. And there was, one sort of really interesting, slightly off the wall memoir um, that was written with a lot of the queer story in it. But it was, I think, sort of self-identified as like part fiction, part memoir. Mm. Um, and so what we really did was once Abby and I were working together on it and Sony had given us the OK, we just got to know the the women and the community of people surrounding the surviving players. And in that experience, we we met a lot of people who were like, nope. There were, maybe there were some lesbians. I, I don't know. Uh, and a lot of people who were like, oh, yeah, everybody <laughs> was. And most of those people are still in the closet. Maybell Blair, who is a consultant on the show and be- has become a huge friend and supporter of ours, uh, actually came out at the age of 95, which makes me emotional just thinking about it. But our conversations with her were a huge part of shaping the show, too.
0: Yeah, it's it's such a joy to watch her right now it Mm -hmm. just it feels like she's living her best gay life (laughs) just being able to just talk all about all of this and having an entirely new generation of people kind of tuning in and tuning in to baseball. And it's been really, really fun to watch.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's been fun for her too. I don't think anyone has ever had like a faster road from um, coming out to becoming like a
0: sudden gay icon. Yeah, no, totally.
1: I think she is a, a kind of gay icon now. And, and I'm just so happy for her, you know, at the time that we started talking to her, it really was unimaginable that she would have would have chosen to sort of speak publicly. And we just felt lucky that she was willing to share her stories with us at all. But I think, you know, she's really been a part of the community of the show. And I think it, it means something a little different to her right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I, I really appreciate and love about the show is that, you know, you talked uh, you talk a little bit about how you specifically wanted to go into, uh, you know, a couple of different facets, right? Like looking at these Black women who were not able to play in the league we're not allowed to play in the league and Latina women who were players in the league uh, and these queer elements and it would it would be so easy for you know a show to be like okay we want to tell these stories and so here's the queer story here's the Latina story here's the black story Um, and instead you're able to just weave all of these things together to create a tapestry of what is just what the world is like
1: yeah, no, I mean, we uh, what we really wanted to do in approaching the show was just to tell these stories authentically and then at the same time to look at the world now and sort of, you know, we're not it's not a museum. It's not just a, a walk through the history. It's also a conversation about what these stories mean now. And so we kind of looked at the overlap of those two things. But I think t- to what you're saying, there's a long history in our industry for really um good reasons, especially with queer stories, but also with the stories of people of color and with the stories of women of sort of wading into them gradually. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and in some ways, that's where the idea of queer beating comes from, I think, is the idea of sort of making a promise, maybe even a slightly coded one that like the quote, unquote, mainstream audience isn't gonna, um, isn't gonna receive. Right. And I think we're now at a point where we are mainstream. Um, if you look at the numbers of queer identifying people in Gen Z, it's above 20 percent and we can tell the real stories. And And I think we can be the universal story. So that was sort of our decision, along with, you know, there's a moment in the pilot where Greta Darcy Carden's character says, like, as long as we're here, we're going to rob the bank. Um, and I think that's sort of been accidentally become our rallying cry for the show, too, Excellent. which is like. We're just, we don't know how long we're going to get to make this. Hopefully it's a really long time. So for as long as we do, we're going to do the version that we're really proud of. Yeah,
0: definitely. You, I I wanted to ask like along, you know, the same lines is with the, with the research that you all did. And I know that you worked with a researcher. I know you worked with Natalie. So not just the storyline and the people's stories that you're telling, but the way that the show is. Uh, structured, even like the soundtrack playing Sister Rosetta Tharp or having Bertie and everybody basically doing uh, a rent party in their uh, apartment. <laughs> The entire kind of atmosphere of the show has so many wonderful elements of queer history and queer past woven into it. How did you approach kind of building all of this in, even if it wasn't one to one with exactly what is going on at the time, um, but just kind of building in these these queer histories as an atmosphere?
1: Totally. Well, so I think as a starting place, I've always been really interested in the history of queer communities and queer spaces. And and there's not a lot of research on a lot of periods of history, but you find these incredible nuggets and these incredible stories that you're like, wow, how could that be possible? That even in that time, there was a gay bar. Um, So... I think that was just an innate interest that I brought and Abby also brought to the show. We are queer people. We are, um, you know, the show is personal for us as well as historical and, and based on Penny's movie. So, so that's sort of, sort of a basic thing that we brought to the show, but it was really interesting trying to kind of do the research to construct an authentic version of what these lives might have been like and what these conversations might sound like. And in doing that, we had to look really far afield because there were partial reminiscences you know, a lot of little stories from people, Maybell and a few other people were really open with us. But also most of the people who could share their memories with us are now in their nineties and their memories might not be the most robust. And at the same time, they are just getting into telling their own stories. So we had to look at a lot of different sources to really draw a kind of what felt to us like an authentic picture of the world. There's an incredible book called Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, which is a history of uh, the lesbian community in Buffalo, New York that was very helpful. I mean, I'm just naming a couple. Uh, There were so many. But um, Liz Coe ran our research process during the development. And Natalie So, as you said, took it over in the first season. And it was just I mean, the amount of work that was put into excavating these little details from many different sources or personal anecdotes, or even people talking around an issue, um, was incredible. We owe so much to them. And at the same time, um, we wanted to do a lot of really detailed research on Rockford, Illinois, the queer community there, but also the black community in Rockford, Illinois, which isn't necessarily all that well documented. So we spent some time with black women from Rockford in their eighties and nineties and heard their stories and where they'd like to eat and what they remembered from the time. And then we just did a deep dive on the archives and really tried to get to know the city. Awesome.
0: So you, did you, you visited? Uh, specific like archives in in Rockford?
1: Yeah, we went to the um newspaper archives in Rockford yeah. and then also there are some people who sort of either professionally or informally have done a lot of historical work on Rockford um and on the great migration in Rockford because it was a big, you know, wartime industrial hub and other aspects of the community. So again, there wasn't one authoritative source, but Pat Reed put together an amazing group of people for us. Um, to talk to and the mayor of Rockford was incredibly helpful to us. And, you know, that's an ongoing relationship and we just, it, it's so many parts of doing the research for the show have really been life changing, mm-hmm. but getting to be part of those stories. Yeah, it's been incredible.
0: Well, and I think it really comes through, in that you you have a wonderful team of researchers, you have a team of people who are interested in kind of uncovering these stories and uncovering these little tidbits that you can string together into a larger picture. And it's obvious that queer people and people of color and queer people of color and non-binary and trans people are in the room um, mm-hmm. and... I mean, from what you were saying with, uh, you know, reading Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, I think that Natalie said that she read some things from Roey Thorpe. One of the Never. things that I think is really so well done in the show is that very specific dynamic in the 1940s of, like, butch femme. And one of the nuances that I really love is that through line of both Carson and Max trying to find themselves in that in between. Was that something that just kind of came out of the character process, the writing process? Or was that something that was kind of baked in, you know, some sort of commentary on like, these are the kind of roles you had that were available for queerness at this time? And how do we look at that now?
1: Um, That's a really interesting question. And and I think first of all, I love butch femme stories. And those kind of dynamics, they are a really important part of queer history, especially lesbian uh, history. And at the same time, they've never been the whole story, right? And maybe they've been represented in a way that's like, is a little straightforward or a little simple when really there's a lot of freedom. Inside of those archetypes and also outside of those archetypes. So where that scene between Carson and Max came from and that dialogue, I mean, we have a a few writers uh, in the room and Weinstein uh, is one of them who had really strong and interesting perspectives on gender and on queer history. And and. Uh, and Em has done a lot of research on their own about those dynamics and that kind of representation. And Dofia is another one of our writers who has specialized a lot in genealogy and sort of queer family and, mm-hmm. and had a lot to contribute there. But also, honestly, I think that scene, which is in the episode that I wrote and directed really came for me um in in a lot of ways too, in addition to them. I've always felt sort of in between in terms of how I understood myself and my own sexuality and gender. I never really felt um at home with uh certainly with straight people. Um but I, I also had a hard time seeing myself in the queer community um for a long time and sort of understanding myself in in gender terms. So I think I was just sort of interested in the part of Carson that had been conditioned. In this very femme way, right? Because that was sort of what society had accepted, uh, expected of her. But that's not who she is. It's not the whole story of who she is. And Max, who's had this very compartmentalized life where... In one area of it, she is living in a sort of butch-forward way, and she is an athlete, which is unusual for a woman at at that time, at that age. But in another part of her life, she's her mom's daughter, and she's led this sort of very sculpted femme existence. So it it felt like a place where those characters could maybe talk to each other in a way that maybe no other characters in in the show would quite be able to. Mm -hmm.
0: I would love to see either one of them somehow come across the term kai kai, because Mm -hmm. that is something that I actually didn't know about. Uh, I was doing an episode years ago with some other folks about the evolution of like queer language and queer slang. And I saw that on a list. It was like, Kiki, oh, yeah, it's the dance. And, you know, it comes from ball community. Um, But in the 50s, there was, uh, I can't remember, there was a specific person i think that coined it but it's the term kai kai which is essentially that gray area between butch and femme and i remember mm. just like watching the episode and just being like y'all are kai kai it's fine it's okay it's okay to be in between um
1: that's so cool it's and really that's, fun i think that that kind of um the history of queer language And the vocabulary, it's something we really had to explore both in the show, but also kind of in ourselves as we were writing it, you know, just sort of when Greta's looking at herself, what kind of words is she using? Because we didn't necessarily have a common vocabulary. There wasn't nationwide queer media or or TV shows that would sort of help spread slang. And so it was very regional. And was sort of familial um, in some sense. And and it was a really interesting experience, I think, for all of us to really understand how these characters might view themselves.
0: Yeah, well, and especially because a lot of that language, the language that we use now was not what was going on at the time. You know, 1930s, 1940s, nobody was walking around saying, I'm a lesbian. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, it was, uh, you know, sometimes you'd see bisexual used or... um, I really appreciate the use of the term invert. Um, I think that really, you know, grounds us in what time we're in. Um, but also just the other ways that language is used throughout the show. Friends of Dorothy, fruit, uh, these kind of euphemistic things. We're just constantly hearing the character say, oh, you know, like us or things like that. I think is really grounded in that specific time and also is like coded ways to bring people in.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting, you know, in terms of saying like us or like that or that way, it really brings you back to the fact that a lot of this vocabulary is a way of establishing commonality and being able to like look at someone and say, we're the same. Mm -hmm. And that's harder when you don't have the word, right? And you wonder if if you're walking around in the world wondering if you're completely alone. Um, So it made me think a lot about just what words we use to describe ourselves Uh, Now, and the fact that we have more vocabulary and sort of the beauty of that, it made me appreciate that to have to look at um, these diaries and journals and have conversations with people who didn't have that language available to
0: them. Mm I want to shift a little bit to episode six, which you you wrote and directed, you know, you mentioned that you you're really interested in queer community, but like specifically in the history of like queer nightlife and the importance of gay bars being places of that queer community, which really showed through. Can you talk a little bit about the development of that episode and that storyline, the importance of showing a queer bar as like an enclave for queer community and also the aftermath of that?
1: Yes, definitely. So I, um, like I said, I've always been interested in that. And I'm not alone in that in our writers. And even it's been fun for me seeing, you know, people kind of posting online like, oh, but like there wouldn't have been a bar there at that time. And it's so wonderful to dive into that research and find out, no, there were bars not everywhere, but in many places, not just cities, sometimes small towns. And uh, as you see on Max's side of the story, Um, When people didn't necessarily have either the means or the access to create public spaces, it it became something that happened in people's houses, Mm -hmm. rent parties, house parties, um, that kind of thing. So to me, um, part of what was the, the draw for that was that Carson has been playing with this team. You know, the show's really about finding your team on multiple levels of meaning, right? And the first thing for her was coming in and finding Greta, but gradually telescoping out to find this bigger community and walking into the bar and having the moment where uh, she thinks that Lupe is trying to get traded to another team and Lupe (laughs) thinks she's about to get turned in.
0: Favorite, Um, favorite moment.
1: incredible. But where the... The desire to do that in this show in this way really started, um, it started with The Office, which is a gay bar in Rockford, which existed at the time. Um, and, and then also in talking to Maybelle and other women who played in the league who were queer. They just talked a ton about experiences at bars, um, and even at bars that were raided. And Maybell talked about having to climb out a window wow. uh, to get out of one of those bars when it was raided. So that that feeling of kind of sneaking out and sneaking into this space where you could be yourself, I think, was um, in some ways the origin of that story on the Peaches side of this episode. For Max, I think it's much more about family. And the idea that she has a mother who's really shaped her, but she has someone else in her life, her uncle, who's a different kind of mentor and is shaping her in a different way. And we wanted to open up that world for her in an authentic feeling way. I think it's often tempting when you're telling the story of queer spaces to say, like, well, she could have just gone to the gay bar because it was also an underground, but of course as we know, queer people aren't less racist. And unfortunately, at times are, are even more racist than straight society is. So, uh, so we knew we didn't want to do that. And what it led to was constructing these sort of two different uh real, but also in some ways, magical um, spaces.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is, it's, It is hard to watch and yet it is one of my favorite scenes in the entire show just because it's, it's so powerful and because it doesn't, it showcases obstacles to queer joy and queer love, but doesn't, uh, it's not Trauma porn, you know, it's Mm -hmm. the aftermath is okay, where's our family? Where's our friends? What do we do after this? And what I really appreciate about it as well is that dichotomy, but also parallel storytelling of Max and Carson, and the way that because of the barriers to Max and to Birdie and to their family and friends, not having access to these spaces of like formalized queer community uh, and having to be out you know, near the railroad tracks doing this rent party. Uh, I'm glad
1: you, I'm glad you noticed <laughs> and appreciated the railroad tracks.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it just, it just brings me back to, you know, reading so much about the Harlem Renaissance, you know, 20s, 30s, mm-hmm. and, and, and to have them talking about how they met at a Gladys Bentley concert is just, it's, let me tell you, being like a queer historian doing this work, watching this show, I feel like it was so many wonderful little tidbits just put in there directly to, Make me happy. I was like, oh my goodness. Um, Well,
1: I, I mean, (laughs) it also made me happy. I love Gladys Bentley. I love the stories of the Harlem Renaissance. That particular, the story of their house is also pinging um, a set of histories about the Great Migration and the, the sort of wartime migration and housing. And of course, in a lot of cities, there was redlining and people of color were zoned out of a lot of neighborhoods and so did wind up living in places near the railroad tracks or, or other places that were, quote unquote, less desirable. But that also maybe, in some cases, afforded them some privacy.
0: Exactly um, The way that the show specifically decided to tell the story of like, who gets... Rated. Who has that interaction with those forces trying to break that up? Is you know Max and everyone doesn't get the access, but they also, in some ways, because of that exclusion, have that privacy and that mm-hmm. quote unquote safety ish. Um, yeah. I mean, even so, just kind of juxtaposing that between the way that Carson and Greta have to interact with one another out in public, where you have uh, Max and S at the end, being able to share a kiss while there are other people around, you know, still looking around, but the, the kind of the differences between those stories, are really appreciated.
1: Yeah, I think a part of what's moving about that to me, and it's so fun talking to you and, and the way that you're seeing a lot of the details that we were um, very uh, intentional about, even if ultimately not um, a lot of people were going to notice them as, <laughs> as much. You know, I, I think Again, we have this sort of inherited set of narratives that we've always been hiding, especially in a pre-Stonewall context. And that Stonewall was really the start of queer people making noise. And, um, that's not true. And I think queer people have always been questioning the world around them and making noise. So it, it felt important to tell that story. And again, we really wanted to center kind of. As Desta, my, uh, our, one of our executive producers who's a writer on the show would always say, a lens of joy on the show without looking away from the hard things. Mm-hmm. Um, and without, and without making it sort of seem magical. So Max has to give up a lot to get to that space. Carson has to give up a lot to get to that space and even more afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to change and you have to to leave some parts of yourself and in some cases your family behind in order to do that. We talked a lot about the work of joy, which is something that really resonates for me in my own life uh, to, you know, the insane number of hours that you put in to get those moments of real ecstasy where you feel like I'm in exactly the right place doing the right things and the sacrifices you have to make.
0: Exactly. Amazing. Uh, I know that we're coming short on time, so I just had a couple more things. I wanted to talk a little bit about Birdie and the absolute thrill of seeing representation of trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming butch identity in the 1940s. I don't think, and you know, I've had quite a few friends mention this to me, like, don't think I've ever seen on mainstream TV or any show so precisely, exactly on point, like, get... It and and represent wow. the nuances of the culture and what it's like to move through the world in that way. Um, you know how much of that was discovering Birdie as a character in the script, and how much of that was Lee Robinson bringing so much wonderful experience and life to the role. I'm in the Bay Area. I know that they're in the Bay Area, and I would love mm. to <laughs> just sit down and have coffee with them and be like, so.
1: I'm sure that um, that Lee would love that too. And and I mean, the answer is yes to all of those things. Um, You know, first of all, like almost everything in the show, it started with a lot of research on trans lives, And experiences at the time, but also uh, with a lot of conversation in in the writer's room about what people related to and what people wanted to see. And and Feniso, who I mentioned before, was really instrumental in doing that research. Um, Michelle Badillo, one of our writers, was a really big part of that conversation. Also, um, M. Weinstein. And uh, I think what we really wanted to do with both Birdie and Gracie, again, was tell the story through a lens of joy and the amount of work that it's taken them to have a normal domestic existence. And I say normal in, in quotes, right? Like. They're able to function as a family. They're able to have their friends over. um, And they do sort of play with gender roles. And some of the things that we might think of as sort of part of the pop culture stereotypical representations at the time. But they've sacrificed so much um, to be able to do that. And their allusions in the show to how much they've had to move around and to what their experiences on the, the road have been. One of my favorite scenes in the show is when Max wakes up. Um, the morning after meeting S. Mm-hmm. And you just have the sense that like Bertie and Gracie are having the best time uh, watching Max take these kind of first steps as a baby mm-hmm. uh, as a baby queer person. Um, and there was a lot of warmth in that scene, but also there's some pain and some questions underneath it. Uh, so So a lot of it came from research and from the writers, but Lee um, was instrumental in shaping the character in how we talked about the character in how Brady dressed. And it was just a really, you know, this whole show was really about teamwork because the lived experiences being represented are bigger than certainly Abby and I uh, can can represent, but really than any one person can represent. So it's just a lot of trusting each other and listening and what feels right and what do we not want to do. Um, but I, I was, you know, um, Lee Robinson, who plays Bernie and Patrice Covington, who plays Gracie just brought so much to those roles that you can really only dream about when you're putting words down on a page. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's been really special to just see how every single person involved just has brought so much of their own experience in to everything. And I think it really shows and I think it really shows the importance of having, people whose stories are being represented in the writer's room and behind the camera and the ways in which queer representation can directly affect queer history and queer present.
1: Absolutely. And honestly, it's I mean, first of all, it's incredibly complicated and every show is different and every every situation is different. But one of the things that I really valued in this show um, and in this experience was that in every facet of the show, a lot of the people working on it were queer. So you had these conversations that would almost never happen, even if there was representation, uh, even if a few of the directors were queer, or a couple of the writers, were, because there's a way that we put pressure on ourselves in predominantly straight situations to sort of represent mm-hmm. um, uh, queer people in uh, in, uh, in a way that can be slightly defensive. And so it just opened up a lot of conversations and different perspectives. And oh, wow, you see it that way. And um, that really fed into the show, I think, in a beautiful
0: way. I mean, even just like in micro ways of just the camera work and, and the structure is, is so inherently queer just in its makeup and framework. I mean, just, you know, as like a queer fandom person who's been in, you know, women loving women spaces for so long, right? Like, I look at the pilot and I sit there and I go, you know, at the haircutting scene, right? You're like a straight person would not have done that. Um. Yeah, there's a little <laughs> there's bit of a, a signal. Bit. Right. Um, You're like like straight, straight straight person would not have have framed this in this way and made that scene come off in that particular charged way. Particular way. way. Um, yeah, that you know, really only I feel like queer people will pick up on. <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, but I think, again, you know, queer stories are outsider stories and they're universal, right? Like all of us straight people, we all have that thing of wanting to belong. Mm. And the way you tell really resonant universal stories is by specificity. So we wanted to get the details right, but also open up the stories to... A global audience and to a wide audience and say, not we're going to educate you or we're going to explain any part of this, but just step into this world and and walk with us for a little bit.
0: Absolutely. Well, I know that we're all, you know, waiting with bated breath to hear about whether or not season two will be happening. Um, But in an ideal world where you could do whatever you would like, what kind of ways would you like to expand this world going forward in the story like what what other queer or otherwise history stories are you interested to bring into the narrative
1: yeah no i mean we're all very optimistic about um season two and hopefully more seasons happening and honestly after the like volcanic love for the show (laughs) and reviews and everything else. It's, it's unimaginable to me that it wouldn't and that it won't. And I think the problem with the show from the start, and it's a good problem is that there's just been so much from the beginning. So really a lot of our, once we dove into the research and did have those conversations, it was really about how we sort of bring people into this world. Mm. Um, and how we start these stories the right way. There's a huge story of generational shift here that ultimately the span of the show will hopefully take us through that story. But I think we're also just very interested in this moment where all the rules change mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how that affects people. There's so many things that I'd like to do more of. That it's almost impossible for me to <laughs> um, to know where to start. But even just you know the second season of the AGPBL gives us a lot of opportunity because it's no longer about the scrappy little startup. You know people are paying attention now, right. and that's wonderful. Um, And you're not fighting for your survival, but also people are paying attention now. How does that
0: add constraints? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, And, and, you know, Max's story, uh, without spoiling anything, is going to take her a very long way to play um, professional baseball on her own. And she ended the first season finding a team. So in some way, I think what we want to do with season two is about the problems of success. Mm -hmm. You know, once you have that taste of what your dream is really like, it also forces you to make really hard decisions and to look at yourself in a different way. And I think that's a lot of uh, of what we'll be exploring. Very
0: cool. I, I am looking so forward to it. Thank you so much for Taking the time to sit and chat with me of i hope that everyone will go check out the show if somehow they have been living under a rock and not watched it yet it's amazing we're going to be doing a full episode on the queer history of all american girls professional baseball league so i'm looking forward to getting even more uh, in depth into all of these stories and i'm so looking forward to seeing what comes next where can people find more from you on social media and the internet? Oh,
1: uh, well, you can find the show League of Their Own on Amazon. And I'm at Twitter at Will W. Graham. And there's plenty of uh, interesting content on the show's account and uh, on Instagram as well. And there's a whole lot of things happening with the show on TikTok <laughs> that you should check out if you're, yeah, absolutely.
0: If you're there. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Will.
1: Thanks a lot. (音楽) All right.